I've entitled this morning's message, The Eleven Byproducts of Being Begotten Again. Last week, we introduced the book of First Peter and the author. We spent some time, of course, dealing with uh, election, predestination versus man's free will. And then we kind of round-robin that uh, deep subject, debatable subject, uh, has been for 400 years. We, we exhausted some conversation about it on Wednesday night as well. And if you missed that, please go ahead. You can go to our website, see the, the YouTube uh, video of it. But now what we want to do is we want to move on. We want to move on through this book and especially into the, the section that is before us because it brings every believer into a, a, a phenomenal and beautiful understanding of what is theirs once they've been begotten again. And the first thing we should really do together this morning, I'm not sure how far we'll get along. I doubt that we'll get through 11. So this may be a two-parter. We'll just see how the Lord goes with that. We're fortunate to be able to take communion together this morning as well, so I'm not going to rush through it, but I, I won't uh, just stall, if you will, on, on something, but just trying to sense what the Holy Spirit would have for us this morning. And what I know is important is that we define the phrase. Peter says there in verse 3, if you'll read it with me again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. The phrase is important to know and to understand. Maybe it's second nature to you. Uh, it is a word that is used in this setting and then used differently in another setting. In this setting, it is uh, pronounced anageno, which simply means to be begotten again. But in the other setting, it's back in the Gospels, very familiar. You probably are with Jesus' encounter with uh, the Hebrew Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a very religious man. He was a, a leader in the synagogues, and he knew that Something was unique about this person who called himself Jesus. And in fact, his followers called him the Messiah. And so, you know the account, right? You could almost recite it verbatim, is that Nicodemus chose to come to Jesus at night. Not during the day when everybody could see him, not, you know, on the Sabbath when everybody would wonder, why are you going to this uh, self-proclaimed prophet. He comes at night and he says in John chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, we know that you have come from God because no one can do the, the miracles, the things that you do, except he be of God. And then Jesus tells him, he says, most assuredly I say unto you that unless you are Born again. In John 3, 3, it is uh, geno. In 1 Peter, it's anagano. 
Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so here we have this absolute (laughs) defined reality in the life of every professing Christian that they are born a second time. It is the same phrase, same word, but used differently, meaning the same thing. And the result, the Apostle Paul talks about the result of being born anew, begotten again, born again. In his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. A new creation, born again, begotten again. Nicodemus was trying to wrestle it out physically. How how can one be born again? Must he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus explained that, no, this is a spiritual birth. And so we come this morning to that first reality that Peter wants his reading audience and everyone that is now in the New Testament church to agree that Jesus Christ, God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, has begotten us again. It's a second birth, beloved. Have you been born twice is the question. We have a a very challenging statement in Revelation 20, verse 6. I'll read it to you. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. There are two deaths. There is a physical death in this life, and then there is an eternal death to those who reject and refuse to receive and accept the gospel. But there is only one death, beloved, to those of us who have named the name of Christ, and it is this one physical death here. You want to put it in parentheses, it sounds like this. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Are you born again? Someone may ask you, you know, they they see, maybe they sense something about you. I have an illustration of that later, but they sense something about you. Well, why, why do you have the morals you have? Or why are you so joyful? Or whatever it might be. And then the million-dollar question, are you a Christian? Well, a lot of people will say, I'm Christian. But will you own and embrace the phrase, I'm born again? That, that begs the question, born again? Well, oh, you're one of those born-agains? What does that mean? Well, yeah, let me explain it to you. So this is who the byproducts of 
of being begotten again. What follows in Peter's dissertation is a list, and I couldn't get away from him going, oh, there's one, oh, there's one, oh, there's one. You know, these things that are byproducts, if you will. Fruit is another way you can explain it, of being begotten again. And I want to share with you some of the 11 this morning. So if you're taking note, on the back of your bulletin, you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then start right there as we deal with number one. Uh, Erica is doing such an awesome job on our uh, screens this morning. I tried to make this outline uh, tangible for her because if I do too many words, it's difficult for her. But uh, the first byproduct for anyone that has been begotten again is an immediate praise of God for his mercy. You see it there in the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy. That's the first byproduct. It's like praising God for his mercy in our life. I love a lot of what Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the turn of the century, puts it this way. All his goodness to us begins with mercy. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of our God that all our hopes begin. It's a great phrase. And how often does mercy hit our lives? You know, I was listening to uh, Bart Miller on, um, maybe you've seen that film, I Can Only Imagine. If you haven't seen it, that's, it's, a, it's a go get it, watch it, if you take part in watching films. But it's, a, it's one of those classics because it's the real life story of a lead singer of a Christian band called Mercy Me. And Bart's dad was a horrible alcoholic, beat him terribly, beat his mother terribly. And through his life, he was just trying to seek the Lord. Eventually, he's reconciled with his father. And as this band begins to take off down there in the Texas area, traveling, he called his grandma. You remember the story? He called his grandma. He said, Grandma, our, our band is really getting along, and I, we just we need a name. I don't know what to name the band. And she goes, Mercy me, what should we name that band? <laughs> he said, That's it. How often does mercy come into our lives? Well, we're told in Lamentations is that his faithfulness is great and his mercies are new. How long? Every morning. Every morning. If you ran out yesterday, guess what? Brand new day. God showers his mercy on his people. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. So, I mean, really, that's, that's one of the first 
byproduct of, of when you were born again. And I didn't stop on that too long, but I mean, I trust that every one of us has a moment in time, a, a, a marker of some sort. You, you run into people that say, well, I've been in the church all my life. Okay, but when were you born again? Well, I don't know. I just kind of always believed. Okay, but when did the Holy Spirit of God cause you to know that you have new life? A marker, a benchmark of some sort. And the first byproduct is an immediate praise of God for his mercy. Secondly, this morning, a second byproduct is that we are given a living hope. It's there continually in verse 3. According to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Not a stagnant hope. Not a um, dead hope. But a living hope. And a living hope, just like anything living, would be growing. It would start out at one position and, and be growing to another. The, the church, beloved, is, is not an institution. And if you get anything today, walk a takeaway. The church is not an institution. It's to be a living organism filled with life. And anything living is going to be growing. It's, it's not going to just stay the same, right? Although we can get into habits around here. Services at 10 o'clock, we do four worships. Study is, you know, 40 minutes. You can get into those routines, but, but please press past that. This is to be a living organism where in and through our week, the life of Christ is... is ebbing and flowing by the person of the Holy Spirit through our lives. Why? Because he, he has begotten us again and we are filled with an immediate praise for his mercy and he has given us a living hope. The Apostle Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Thessalonians. He said in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, uh, beloved, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Who don't have the same hope as you have, Paul is saying. And there are those in our life path that don't have this hope. And the sorrow that they feel and express at at the concept of the loss of life, the concept of, of debilitating things. There's no hope. Our hope, I've, I've said it before, our hope certainly isn't in government. Our hope certainly isn't in law. Our hope certainly isn't in career or Mr. or Mrs. Wright, depending on where you are in the, the marital you know, trajectory. Those hopes come and go and fade. But a living hope is a byproduct of being begotten 
again. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if you're taking note, he said, this is the Amplified Bible. It says, if we who are abiding in Christ have hoped only in this life, and this is all there is, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. If this is it, and many of us this morning would go, no, I know this isn't it, there's more. But there are some that would say, you know, is this it? A living hope, a growing hope that grows with you as you grow closer to Christ, that grows with me as I grow closer to Christ. A third byproduct and a very important one is if each one isn't important, but they're all important, comes to us in verse 4, and it is a reserved, incorruptible inheritance. Let's read the verse together. It says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And a reserved, incorruptible inheritance. I love Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 version, because they've, they've altered it over, you know, the span of time a little here and there. But if you go online and type in Webster 1828, man was a devout Christian. And he has examples there as he explains the word inheritance. Uh, the estate or possession which may descend to an heir, though it has not descended yet. Right? So Webster says there, there's this possession. Uh, there is a, an estate, if you will. This huge thing that's coming. It hasn't come yet, but it's yours as an heir. Now we have examples of of inheritance given in, in Scripture earlier, like, for instance, in the Old Testament, God promised the people of Israel that they would inherit the land of Israel. Uh, Rachel and Leah said to their father, is there yet no portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Genesis 31, 14. Numbers 26, 54. Joshua 11.23, God promised that they would inherit that land. It's a physical inheritance. Uh, don't know if you've seen the news lately, but guess who occupies the land of Israel? Israelis. And there's been a fight over borders for huge amounts of time, but, but they came back to the land. They were dispersed. Only country in history, the only nation in history that was dispersed and destroyed and came back and has risen back as a nation. Why? Because God promised an inheritance to them of that land. And he has promised you with the same veracity an inheritance that is yours and yours and yours. Incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. I love what one commentator said. He said, I think this was Wolvert and Zuck, a Christian's inheritance cannot be destroyed by hostile forces and will not 
spoil like over-ripened fruit. It, it can't be defiled. It can't be taken away. It is incorruptible. Our inheritance that's coming to us hasn't descended yet, but it's coming. And it's there and it's ours. Number four this morning, and as we remind ourselves, an immediate praise of God for his mercy, a living hope, a reserved incorruptible inheritance. Number four this morning, a knowing that you're kept by God's power. Verse five, the beginning of verse five says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. A fourth byproduct, again, church, is that you know that you are kept, you're held. This inheritance, this hope, this praise for his mercy, you're kept and held. We are kept by God's power. The New International Version of the Bible renders the word there shield. And whether you, whatever version you're in, the term is a military term that means to guard. You are guarded by the power of God. And you remember what that power is. Who that power is, rather. It's not a what. He is a he, and he is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to send to them the Holy Spirit, he said in Luke 24, 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with, what? Power from on high. Now, we may have discussed this from time to time, and we're going to explore in the months of months months ahead the the person of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's just kind of a heads up. I really am prompted in that way. But remember those who went into the upper room. They had already said yes to Christ. Remember his disciples had already seen him resurrected. And in his resurrected state to them, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet, every follower was commanded, exhorted to go into Jerusalem and wait and tarry until they were endued from a power on high. What happened? Pentecost happened. Acts chapter 2. You know, some of you may recall the account. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then appeared to them divided tongues of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
wait a minute, didn't they get the Spirit before? Yes. Wait a minute, wasn't the Spirit working as they came to Christ? Yes. But there is this work of the grace of God, a, a thing called the baptism of the Spirit. Jesus said in Luke 3.16, he said, I indeed baptize, well, John said it in Luke 3.16. He said, I indeed baptize you with fire, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to unloose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You may recall that Jesus promised that the Spirit of God be, would be with them and that he would be in them. In his uh, instruction in Luke 24, 49, he uses a different uh, word and he says, go to Jerusalem and wait until the Spirit comes upon you. So we have with, in, and upon and the Bible teaches about this work called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that baptism, it is in that indwelling spirit, which we'll talk about as well. But it is, I mean, think about the power of God. He raised Christ from the dead. And Peter says that the way you and I are still kept, the way we're housed and guarded, if you will, in this salvific experience of ours, that we're guarded by that same power. You who are kept by the power of God. I know your question. I know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're thinking, but I know what can often be thought of when a statement like that is made. And someone might say, yeah, but I knew this one guy, you know, or gal, and they became a Christian, or they said yes to Christ, or they bowed their knee, or they, they were born again, or whatever. But then they walked away, and they walked far away, and the things they did while they were walking away were really bad. What happened to the powerful keeping of God to them? I can't answer that. But I can tell you my testimony is that don't give up because you, a believer can walk away from and can choose not to follow the, the God that has called them, that by his grace has saved them. And you may be divided on this theologically, but I mean, for instance, in my life at Hume Lake at 15, I said yes to Jesus Christ. Went down to a fireside, some of you have heard this before, and uh, was led by Ken Poor in a prayer of salvation. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus Christ into the world to save me from the penalty of my sin. I believe that he died on a cross to pay the price for that sin. And I, I ask him to forgive me of my sin and come into my life and take over. Have you said that? Because I know I, I said that at 15 and then things happened. There was no follow-up in my life. I didn't continue to go to church, didn't read my Bible. And it wasn't long before I spiraled downward into a horrible lifestyle that lasted for 13 years. Now, let me ask you a question, theological question, but real question. 
During those 13 years, I did horrible things that I'm totally unproud of. Don't even want to share at times and won't bother you with the specifics. But at times I almost died. Now I ask you, here's the theological question. If I had died, would I have gone to heaven? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I believe I would have. I'm not sure what I would have seen when I got to the pearly gates. <laughs> Might have been, oh man, here he comes. But There's real New Testament information about that. We talk about uh, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, that which is burned, but they shall be saved as though through fire. But listen, beloved. God has sent his power to keep you. He will not violate your free will. Every day is a choice. Every hour is a choice. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Every hour. Every day. But you aren't being kept by your own power. And you're not being kept by your good intentions. You're not being kept by your great morals. You're not being kept by your, your right thinking or right doing. That would be works. And we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. And we are kept by the power of God. Where are we at? Immediate praise of God, a living hope, a reserved incorruptible inheritance, knowing that you are kept by God's power one more this morning, a fifth byproduct is a joy, though in trials. Read verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, in what? In this living hope, in this uncorruptible inheritance, in the fact that I am kept by the power of God, In that, but the Greek article is this, in this, referring back to what has just been told to us, in this, you, Peter writes to the believer, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Though now for a little while, if need be, have been grieved by various trials. We'll try and work through this. We get out of here on time. Not that you're worried about time, but trial again, according to Webster, 
an effort, any effort or exertion of strength for the purpose of ascertaining its effects or what can be done. Let me restate that again. Webster says that a trial is an effort or exertion of strength for the purpose of ascertaining its effects or what can be done. He also says that an examination by a test, an experiment, as in chemistry or metallurgy. He also says experience, a trial can be experience, suffering that puts strength, patience of faith to the test, afflictions or temptations that exercise and prove the graces or virtues of men. In other words, Peter stresses here that a Christian's joy, remember what we're saying is a byproduct of being born again, a joy, though in various trials. Peter says that a Christian's joy is not dependent upon their circumstances, nor should it be. Though they may cause temporary grief, they cannot diminish that deep abiding joy that is rooted in one's living hope in Jesus Christ. Psalm 30 verse 5 says that weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And joy, though in various trials, is, it's a condition of the soul. It's a condition of the heart. It's not, you've heard the word happiness. We even have it in our constitution, the pursuit of happiness. Well, happiness is something that you and I may hold that is dependent upon circumstance. The joy of the Lord is independent of circumstance and is wrought into your being once you have been begotten again. Make sense? And we know who wants to steal, rob, and kill your joy, right? The adversary of your soul. He is the devil himself. He, he's the father of lies. And anytime you sense that joy of the Lord, that is your strength, being attacked and, and trying, you know, just like wants to suck it right out of you. Guess who it is? It's not God. It's our enemy wanting to steal, rob, and kill the joy that we have as one who has been begotten again and are in the middle of these hardships, these trials. Peter was referring mostly, and we'll get into this when we finish our second part, he was referring mostly to the persecutions that the Christians were experiencing during this time of dispersion. But trials include everything that you and I walk through as believers in life. So to recap, what we have is an immediate praise of God for his mercy, a living hope, not a dead one, a reserved incorruptible inheritance, knowing that we're kept by the power of God, and a joy, though in various trials. The question is, have you been begotten again? And if you have, then these communion elements are for you. The Bible teaches that we are to take of this in a worthy manner. 
And, and how is that possible? None of us are worthy. No, not one. But we become worthy by the, the efficient blood of Jesus Christ. His blood shed for our sin. And by faith, we are given the remission of sin. Sin is, is removed from us to that uh, degree that the Father can look down upon the child of God. You know, we're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. Oh my goodness, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But yes, God created all mankind, but we are not all God's children unless we've been born into his kingdom. And if you've been born and begotten again, these elements are for you, for me, to partake, to break the bread, to remember his body broken, to take of the cup and remember the shedding of his blood. But if you have yet to be born again, you don't remember a time. You, you may think that Christianity is attendance at church or a set of moral beliefs. Then can I entreat you this morning to just let it pass? By you? Or can I entreat you a second time to invite Christ into your life right now as we prepare to take that which is holy in the sight of the Lord, the remembrance of his body and his blood? Will you pray with me as the team comes? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercies. Oh, how great they are. For your love, for your grace. For every manner in which you have been good to us. We are overwhelmed by your goodness, Lord. And we thank you that entrance into your kingdom, that to be a part of your body, it requires a spiritual birth. And so for each of us here today, Lord, those who may be joining us online, a reminder of the joy of having a second birth. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for raising us. Thank you for giving your body and your blood for us. We're here to give you praise, Lord. As we remember what you did at Calvary, name.